Welcome to The Word at First Prez. Over the spring and summer, we are doing a sermon series called Philosopher Kings. The goal of this sermon series is to examine the life philosophies of members of our congregation and how those life philosophies intersect with the Bible. Our hope is that you will find that everyone has something to teach us about life, faith, love, and our relationship with God. I hope you enjoy. Let us continue our worship with our first scripture reading, coming from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along, approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and those eyes were open. He could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from Acts chapter 9, 10 through 19. It's a continuation of the story we were just reading. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. So if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, I know all of you have, right? Haven't missed a week, right? Okay. We've been doing a sermon series called Philosopher Kings. And this term, Philosopher King, it actually comes from Plato, who believed that the people who we should be following, the best leaders in our world, that they are people who follow or study philosophy. And this is not just true of trained philosophers, this is true of ordinary, 
average people. Now, the truth is, all of us have a life philosophy. Every single person in here, we all do. Whether or not we've thought about it, that is the real question. And so back in January, I sent out a request to everyone, and I said, anybody who wants to send me a life philosophy, please do so. I want to hear about the ideas that have impacted your life. And I thought I'd get a few here or there, but I got so many that I was able to form an entire sermon series around them. And so each week we look at one or more of your life philosophies. We see how they intersect with the Bible, how they diverge. And I think what you will come to find is that these have a lot to teach us about life, love, faith, and our relationship with God. So today we are dealing with the subject of choices and crossroads. In particular, what happens when you come to a crossroad and the choice is not entirely clear about what you should do? And I want to begin this morning with a life philosophy that comes from Don Bruce. So Don says that when you come to a crossroads, there are four possibilities about what you can do. So there's what you want to do, what you should do, what you can do, and what you won't do. So when you're young, I'm sure many of you know, you choose option one, right, most of the time. So that's what we do. We don't have a whole lot of life experience under our belts, and we're like, you know what? I'm going to do whatever I want to do, regardless of the consequences. And you do it, and of course, you learn from that, right? You learn, eh, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. So over time, as you get experience, that's when you figure out, oh, I know what I should do. And going down the road of doing what you should do is fine, as long as the options before you are black and white. But what happens when all of a sudden it's not so black and white anymore? What are you going to do? Well, in that situation, then you're going to start gathering information, right? Say, okay, I'm at a place. I need to gather information, figure out what I have in front of me. And that's when you figure out what you can do and what you won't do. But what happens when the information that you get, it still doesn't give you a clear picture? What do you do then? Well, at that point, all of a sudden, you have to rely on your gut. That gut reaction that tells you where to go. Now your gut reaction, that's also known as what? Your intuition, right? And your intuition, that can lead you in a positive direction, it can lead you in a negative direction. And what's interesting about your intuition, how many of you in here think that you use your intuition for say more than half of your decisions? A few of you, right? All right. How many of you in here think you use your intuition for more than 80% of your, your decisions? No? Okay, got a few, got a few. Okay, what's interesting is if you look at the data, most of us in here, we would say, oh, no, I make decisions based on the information, my experience, right? It's actually not true. The vast majority of your decisions are actually made via intuition. You think that they're being made as a result of information, but it's really experience that has informed your intuition about what you should do in a particular situation. And so I want to spend a little bit of time talking about where does your intuition come from? Because in truth, we actually use it all the time. Even though we think we don't, that is what informs most of our decisions. So psychologists will tell you that your intuition is developed through a lot of different means, but primarily where it's developed is actually in the earliest years of your life, during childhood. So take a kid, zero to three. What are they doing in that time, right? 
In that time, they're learning how to navigate the world, are they not? So they're figuring out how to walk, how to talk, how to manipulate objects with their hands. But you know what they also do? They spend an inordinate amount of time watching their caretakers. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment. You're an adult, right? You're where you are right now. Imagine if you quit your job and you spent the next three years just observing another adult. That's all you did for three years. You observed them. Because what happens with a kid, right? What do you do with a kid? What's the kid do? The little kid has to go everywhere with you, right? Can't take care of itself. So that's all this kid is doing for three years. Now, after three years of time of just observing everything this adult is doing, do you think you would know a lot about this person? Absolutely. You'd understand immediately whether they're happy, sad, whether they're frustrated, stressed out. Whatever's going on, you could feel it, and you could sense it just by looking at their body language or small changes in the pitch of their voice. You could see it immediately. I am amazed. It's Father's Day, right? My son slept in, didn't do anything for me. It's what I expect. So... <laughs> <laughs> my son Lucas though he will often when I'm in the middle of a conversation with my wife he'll often say to me he'll, he'll say dad you sound frustrated <laughs> which is probably how I am most of the time so maybe it's not that much of a of an insight but he'll say it and I'll sit back and I'll think to myself you know he's right I didn't even realize that I felt that way but he can see it and I think that that's just so amazing that they have this ability to kind of do that. They're also snipers, too, as they get older. You know what I'm talking about? Like, as a kid gets older, they, like, know your weaknesses, and they can just really drill it into you as they get older. So that's part of the thing that came from them watching you for all those years. But kids, they don't just mimic the things that they see, or they don't just observe it. They end up mimicking it. So they will take the things that you do, and they will do them as well. So as an example, Let's say you grew up in a household, and your caretakers, they tended to be very anxious people. Every choice, it was approached, and it felt like it was an emergency. In all likelihood, this is not universal, but in all likelihood, your gut reaction, your intuition, is going to be modeled after that. That you will be very anxious over choices that you have to make. The same thing is true if you grow up in a house where there's a lot of arguing. So let's say that your caretakers argue a lot over conflict or there's problems that they can't work out and there's a lot of screaming back and forth. Your gut reaction, your intuition will be informed by that. So when you come to conflict, when you come to a place where you need to resolve something, then likely what's going to happen is you are going to try to bend people to your will through your anger. You following me so far? Okay. Now it's not just in conflict resolution though that this plays a role. Imagine for a moment that you grow up in a household where there's a lot of chaos. Perhaps your caretaker is mentally ill or has an addiction issue. That chaos will become your norm. And I want to tell you a little story, an example. And I've told this story before, but it's a good example. So you all know that I had a friend growing up. His name was Elvis. This is Elvis right here. He had passed away a long time ago, about 20 years ago. But he grew up in a very chaotic situation. So his mom was always moving him from apartment to apartment, city to city. He never knew whether or not he was going to eat from one day to the next. So it was very unstable for him. Now, I met him after he had left his home. He was no longer with his parents, and he was trying to move his life in a positive direction. 
But what I noticed is that every time he would take a positive step forward, he would often sabotage himself. So let's say he got a good job and he was getting paid decently for his job. What would happen is he'd get a speeding ticket, he loses license, he loses transportation, he loses job. Or let's say he was making money, he would spend his money on frivolous things. He wouldn't save up, and so he was always living paycheck to paycheck. He never knew if he was going to be able to afford the rent or if he was going to be able to eat in the same way that he grew up. He made a girl, and the girl would really be into him. They'd like each other. They'd be going out for a while, and then he'd go to a party, he'd start drinking, and then he'd leave the party with another girl. And so he'd sabotage it every time. And so I, sh I tell this to you because his gut reaction, his intuition, caused him to make choices that would continually leave his life mired in chaos. Because chaos is what he knew. It's where he was most comfortable. It's not that he consciously sat there and said, you know what, I think I'm going to just mess my life up today. He didn't think of it that way. But underneath, subconsciously, that's what was happening. Likewise, if you grow up in a family where you're given a lot of love and care, if you're shown stability, if your parents are very measured in their decisions, then likely that's going to be you when you grow up you will have that same ability to make those decisions. If you've ever met, have you met anybody who just makes good decision after good decision? I haven't, but maybe one day I will. So, but if you've ever met anybody like that, what you know is one of two things. Either they grew up in a household where they were actually shown that, or they went through a lot of therapy. It's going to be one of those two things, okay? Now, why am I taking all this time to tell you about gut reaction and intuition. Because when we get to our next philosophy, which we're going to jump into in a second, you're going to see how that lays a foundation for this philosophy we're going to talk about. And I'm going to blend them together. So the next philosophy comes from Steve Smith. Both of our people are right there in the back. So Don and Steve. So you're going to see how these two things blend together. So Steve Smith, he sent me his. And I really liked what he had to say about this. He, he basically didn't take ownership of it. He said, this came from my wife, Julie. Sadly, his wife passed away a little while ago. And Julie got this from her grandfather. So it, it goes back a ways. And she, he had four things that he gave me, which is be true to yourself, be a leader, not a follower, always finish what you start, and treat others as you want to be treated. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that all look good to you? All right, we're done for today. I really appreciate you guys coming in. <laughs> feel good. Now, this is a good life philosophy, right? Each one of these things makes a lot of sense. But what I want to do is I want to take what I dealt with in terms of gut reaction and intuition, and I want to apply that to this. So let's take the first one. Be true to yourself. Great philosophy. Very important. And what does that mean to be true to yourself? It means don't live your life to please other people. Don't live according to other people's rules and expectations, right? Live life on your own terms. But what if living life on your own terms means that you're always bringing chaos into your life? What if living life on your own terms means that every time you come up against somebody who gets in your way, you're yelling and you're screaming and you're mad at them? Then all of a sudden, being true to yourself maybe isn't such a good thing, right? Or take the next one, be a leader, not a follower. Great philosophy. I agree with it, but that really only applies if you're a good leader, right? 
Like, you can be leading people in the wrong direction to make bad decisions. Can we all say in here it probably would have been better if Stalin and Hitler hadn't been able to be leaders, right? Okay, same thing goes for finish what you start. This is great. It shows that you're dependable. It shows that you follow through with what you're doing. Absolutely. But if your project is rounding up Jews and sending them to concentration camps, again, I think we would all say, please don't finish what you start. All of these things, they are good philosophies in and of themselves, but it's what goes into them that matters. And the reason I brought this up is because this really applies to what we read today from the book of Acts about the Apostle Paul. We read about his conversion. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with Paul, do you mind if I just go back and just tell you a little bit about who he was? Even if you're not, I'm going to do it anyway. So <laughs> I'm asking your permission, but rhetorically. So Paul was born in 5 AD, or at least that's what we think. We're not entirely sure, in the city of Tarsus. So you can see Tarsus. It's up there on the map. And it's pretty far away from Jerusalem, right? I mean, that's, so Tarsus is up in Turkey. But Paul, he grew up, he was a Jew. He was actually a Pharisee. And you probably heard about the Pharisees, right? They're all throughout the New Testament. So even though he was born so far away, he was actually somebody who really adhered very closely to the Bible. Now, what is a Pharisee? A Pharisee is like a, it's like a denomination in Christianity. What are we? Presbyterians, right? And you got Methodists, Lutherans, Episcopalians, Baptists, Catholics. They're all Christian. We just happen to look at the Bible and interpret it in different ways. And of course, Presbyterians are the best because we have the longest committee meetings. Nobody can match us on our committee meetings. They go on forever. So we don't know why Paul was so against Jesus's movement. But what we do know is that he not only disagreed with Jesus and his movement, but he was trying to shut it down. And he even says, so we have firsthand, this is from his hand, this is from the book of Galatians. What he says is, I was violently persecuting the church of God and trying to destroy it. That's from his hand. He wrote that. So we know that this is what he was doing early. Now, again, we don't know how he came into contact with Jesus' movement, but there's a couple of theories. This is the theory to which I subscribe, which is that I think that one of his relatives started believing in Jesus. I think that's how he first found out about it. And as he heard more about it, he's like, no, this guy, Jesus, is a false prophet. And he got scared because his relative is part of this cult, and that's how they were seen at the time. They were a cult who was worshiping this guy. And so because he was so scared by this, he starts going after the leaders of Christianity, starts going after them. He wants to arrest, imprison, and he was willing to be against them with violence. Now, this is a great example of somebody being true to themselves, is it not? Great example. So, Paul, a Jew, through and through. I mean, this guy has really specific notions of what it means to be a Jew, and also, he has very specific notions of what it means to follow God. And so when he hears that Jesus' movement is gaining steam, he's a leader, he's not a follower, and so what does he do? He leads the opposition against Jesus' movement. And does he follow through? Does he finish what he started? Oh, yes, he does. He's willing to go the distance even if he has to kill people. So that shows you the kind of guy this is. But then in the midst of that persecution, what happens? He has this encounter with the resurrected Jesus. 
Now, that's what we read this morning. TC and I read this together, right? Now, we don't actually know if this is actually what happened, if this is true, because Galatians, when he talks, he actually talks about this in Galatians, and it's real short. He doesn't go into any detail. So Acts could be accurate. It might not be. The point is, after he has this moment with Jesus, it completely changes his perspective. So whereas before he was fighting against the church, now he becomes part of it, and it flips everything, right? So now being a leader is actually following Jesus. Being true to himself is following Jesus. And when he leads, he goes out and now he's planting churches all around the Mediterranean. I've told you all in the past, the reason why we are sitting here today is because of that man. He is the reason why Christianity survived. And now following through means that he actually allowed Christianity to make it. So it's the same philosophy, right? Same philosophy, but it has a completely different outcome. And so what this shows you is that a philosophy is like a shell. The principles of that philosophy are only as good as the values you insert into them. You following me with this? This, is, this really matters. And I'll give you another example. So the last of Steve's philosophies from Julie's grandfather was treat others as you want to be treated. Now that's not original to Julie's grandfather, right? That's biblical. Jesus said that. But here's the problem with that way of thinking, right? Treat others as you want to be treated. We assume that everybody wants to be treated with love and kindness. But what if you're like my friend Elvis? Elvis believed deep down inside that he was not worthy of love and acceptance. And so because of that, the way that he would treat others is he would treat them in such a way that they would push him away. Because he didn't feel he deserved love, so he would try to hurt the people around them, around him, and that would cause them to fall away. You understand what I'm saying? Or take Paul. What does it mean for him to treat others as he wants to be treated? Well, for him, he would want somebody to come along and say, hey, Paul, you're doing the wrong thing. You're actually not following God in the right way. That's what he would want. So that's why he's treating others the way he would want to be treated. It's why he goes out and he starts saying, hey, we're going to shut these Christians down because I don't want anybody to follow God in the wrong way. And so what this demonstrates to us is something fundamental to this sermon series, which is that if you want to be a good person, if you want to live according to a life philosophy that leads you in the right direction, then you have to be aware of how your flaws are directing your behaviors. I'll say that again because that's really important. If you want to live a good life, you have to be aware of how your flaws are directing your behaviors. And this brings me back to what Don was talking about. What were the four things? Do you remember it? What you should do, right? Or what, well, no, what you want to do, what you should do, what you can do, what you won't do. Now, all of those things, right? All of those things are influenced by your flaws. Because all of those choices get influenced by the things that are inside of you, your intuition. So if you want to go down the right path, sometimes you have to be aware of those flaws. And how do you become aware of them? Well, the way you get to be aware of them is you have to do a lot of soul searching. You have to be self-reflective. You have to literally have a come to Jesus moment. Do you know that term? You've heard that phrase, come to Jesus moment? Do you know where that comes from? Literally this scripture that we read this morning. This is the come to Jesus moment where he's going down the road and all of a sudden, bam, 
and he has to reassess everything that's happened to him. And he's got to ask himself a series of questions, which is, why am I doing what I'm doing? What is influencing my motivations? Am I justifying my choices because I think I'm in the right? Or am I doing this out of a place of genuine love and care? And to really demonstrate for you this whole come to Jesus moment, I want to end this morning by telling you a story from my life. This is my big come to Jesus moment that happened to me, and it was in my 20s. So I was at seminary, and I was working as a youth pastor for a church. It was Princeton United Methodist Church. You know, don't hold it against me that I worked for the Methodists for a little while, right? So I go out, I'm working for them, and every year they would go on this mission trip to, called ASP, Appalachia Service Project. And it was run by the Methodists, and what you do is you go into a little town in Appalachia, and of course, many of these people, they lacked the resources to fix their homes. Their homes were often awful. They were dilapidated. So we go in and we try to fix their roofs and reshingle the roofs, redo the gutters, you do concrete work. My specialty was wheelchair ramps. And so I liked the program generally, but what I didn't like about it was that they really downplayed the religious component of it. Like you get there and they'd read a two-minute devotional, and that was it, you know, and then you were off for the rest of the day and you just did your work. And so what I would do is I would teach lessons before we would go because I wanted them to have a sense of why are we going to do this? Like, why does this matter? And I teach on Christian mission. Now, the kids, of course, the youth, just like with TCs, they're used to that, right? The adults, eh, not so much. So they come to this lesson and I teach a lesson on Christian mission. And here was my basic message, which is that I said that doing good works as a Christian is more meaningful than doing good works as a non-Christian. That, that was the point that I made. Now, you have to realize that most of the adults going on this trip were not Christians. They had never been to church. They didn't know much about the Bible. But they were going on this trip because they wanted to help people who were less fortunate than themselves. As you can imagine, they were quite offended by what I said. But from my vantage point, right, I was saying the things that I needed to say. And you have to understand, I, just as a step back from this, just, just so that you understand, I was 26 when I did this. My theology has changed quite dramatically. I'd never teach that today. But at the time, I, that was like being true to myself. Like that was being a leader, like do it. I was coming in and I was going to say what I was going to say. And it got so bad that the pastors had to be brought in to basically mediate between myself and this group of adults. And it got to the point where, like, I, I was just indignant about it. Because I'm like, look, it's my trip. I'm, I'm a Christian. You're not. And you're either going to get with the program or you can go somewhere else. That was kind of the way I was looking at it. I was like, you can... You can do good works wherever you want, but we're going on a Christian trip, right? So you can see it was a lot of fun to work with me. <laughs> now at the time, you know, I didn't realize what was happening, which was I was really turning these people off to Christianity. Rather than giving them hope and showing them the beauty of the gospel, I was a stumbling block. 
And so it's like three days before we leave on the trip, and TC will appreciate this, you're copying all of the license, you know, all of people's licenses and their insurance. You've got to get everything ready in case a kid chops his arm off or whatever so that you can go to the hospital. It's a big, you know, you've got to be ready in case that happens. So I'm sitting there, and of course I'm doing this with one of the moms who I was in this argument with. It's just the two of us in a copier room, and the things are copying, and we're not speaking to each other. And so the tension, as you could probably tell, is really palpable. And I'm sitting there as these things are copying, and I'm just thinking to myself, okay, Alex, like, what were you doing? And I'm thinking back on the whole situation, and I realize in this moment that I'm in the wrong. And so I turn to her and I say, you know, I'm really, really sorry for the way that went down. I should have approached it differently than I did. And she said, and this is a longtime member of this church, by the way, just so that you understand this. She said, you know, I really appreciate your apology. And she goes, I actually respect your belief, how much you believe. But you have to understand, I've been working for years on getting these families to come to this church. And finally, they were willing to go on this mission trip. And I was thinking that this might be the tipping point that would actually have them come and be a part of the church. And now, because of your approach, I don't think they're ever going to come. Now, that hit me. I was like, oh, because, you know, you, my whole thing is to try to help people to be a part of a faith community. And so I was thinking about, like, everything that we talked about, that whole philosophy, right, of be true to yourself, be a leader, not a follower, finish what you start, treat others as you want to be treated. I was doing all of that and I was hurting more people than I was helping. So just like Paul, right, who comes to this moment and he has to look at everything he was doing, I had to just assess it. And I realized in that moment I had the wrong approach. And I changed it from that point forward. You get a little bit of that here because even though I come up here and I will say some crazy things sometimes, I always tell you these are my opinions. And I never want you to feel like you have to believe the things that I say. Because I never want you to feel like I'm putting you in that position where you were like them. Where I sit there and I say, it is this way and there is no other way around it and you have to be like this. That was my flaw. My flaw was I believed that I could not be wrong. And so that's why I stand up here today in the way that I do and I present it to you. And I hope that it gives you something that builds your faith up and makes you feel better about your relationship with God. And I hope that for all of you here, that you would be able to be true to yourselves, but in a way that helps people rather than harms them. I hope that you can see how your flaws are dictating your behaviors, how it's influencing the things that you're doing, but understand that sometimes you have to come to terms. Sometimes you have to have that come to Jesus moment so that you know how you're hurting rather than helping. Because when we can build people up rather than tear them down, that's how we change the world for the better. And that's what Jesus wants us to do to make this world a better place. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.